This is Beata from Solo Leveling, and today we are actually going to do a few book reviews. Uh, This podcast has mostly been commentary for movies and shows, and I really want to just talk about books. Um, So, you know, it kind of fits that description that I have, which is that I also talk about books. And I think that I'm just going to actually do a reading roundup this time. So I'm going to be, if you don't know, I have a book blog. So I'm going to be going through the books that I've read every single month. I might also include manga or light novels. And I'm going to just read the reviews that I've published on my book blog, but I'm also going to talk more about the books themselves, if I can remember how I felt about them. And the talk about things that I liked or disliked about the book that I didn't really put in the review itself because I try to keep them as short as I can um, unless, you know, I just really have a lot to say about it. So I hope that you guys enjoy this and I will put links in the description. Sorry, not links. I will put timestamps in the descriptions to let you guys skip to whatever book you're interested in. So we are going to start with... Wow, I really did not publish a lot on my book blog until this year because I was like, new year, let's do this. And so far, I've been proud of myself because I've been keeping up with it. I try to publish a review every single Monday and I'm really trying to keep myself on a schedule this time. Um, I really appreciate everybody that has tuned in and I'm sorry for disappointing any of you if I really haven't been updating as much. But you know what? Without further ado, we're just going to go into it. So January reading roundup. So my first review was of The Scum Villain Self-Saving System, Volume 1 by Moshang Tongshil. And I said it was a satirical and hilarious journey, perfect for fans and beginners, specifically fans and beginners of uh, Dan Mei or Shen Xia. And I'm going to explain what that is in the review. And all of these are going to be spoiler-free as well. So, The Scum Villain Self-Saving System is one of the three series written by Mo Shang Tongshui that Seven Seas Entertainment published last year. This was an incredibly exciting announcement because MXTX's novels have never been officially available in English until now, despite being one of the most popular names in Dan Mei. Dan Mei are web novels that focus on the romantic relationships between men, and MXTX's novels are also rooted in Xianxia a Chinese fantasy genre where you'll typically find cultivators, people who practice martial and mystical arts to become stronger and who gradually achieve immortality and godhood, and various gods. Out of all three series, the scum villain self-serving system, ugh, that is a word twister, the scum villain self-saving system is my favorite so far as the classical MXTX fingerprints, an infamous and feared love interest who's only sought towards the select few, usually just the protagonist, dry humor and sweet and lighthearted moments to balance out the unsettling and disturbing monsters our cast sometimes comes across. T-S-V-S-S-S. <laughs> even, even abbreviating the title is long. 
um, starts when Shen Yuan, our protagonist, finds himself transported into the world of a trashy web novel as Shen Qingqiu. Qingqiu serves as a minor antagonist at the beginning of the novel and is the one who really pushes the lead, Luo Binghe, to unlock his true power, but also onto the path of evil. So Yuan doesn't find it very fun to find himself trapped in this role, and does what he can to avoid his untimely fate, yet finds himself forced to set off certain events anyway. Along the way, he becomes endeared to Binghe and unwittingly changes the course of the young man's life. First of all, the humor in this book is just right for me. Yuan serves as a perfect stand-in for so many readers who have dedicated time and money to a series that fails us in the end, and his bitterness towards the author and the system that penalizes him for straying outside the original plot is hilarious. Every time he argues with the system, I'm reminded of that Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney meme. Um, you know, objection. <laughs> Besides our salty protagonist, MXTX pokes fun at all the tropes that you typically see in web novels, like the villain monologuing or the harem of beautiful women all in love with the protagonist. There's also love in the satire, though. Every character is deeper than they appear on paper, and their humanity becomes clearer as Ching Chou interacts with them. The satire also comfortably walks alongside the action, which is clever and intricate in ways only the Xianxia genre can be. If you're a new reader who's nervous about the magic system being convoluted, don't worry. The translators have done a great job making the roles and powers understandable and giving enough context to enjoy but not be bogged down by the magic. The notes at the end are also very helpful, and if you continue reading more Xianxia, it's definitely something you're going to get used to. As Ching Chou does his best to survive, he becomes closer to being her. One of my problems with this book that you'll see in other Danmei is this teacher-student relationship that pops up, and the age difference between them. While they both become immortal eventually, it still feels weird. I recommend Mo Dao Zhu Shi if you want to avoid this. It is a cute relationship though, as Ching Chiu becomes the teacher his character should have been for Bing He, and Bing He's admiration for him grows. This makes the ending even more heartbreaking, but I look forward to the resolution in the next few volumes. One of my favorite things is the action and creatures in MXTX novels. It's always well paced and often delves into an introspective nature on humans and gods. In this volume, you'll see a quote-unquote friendly battle between demonic cultivators and human ones, a battle with the dream demon, a beast hunting tournament arc, and more. Each event is also necessary action to push our characters forward in some way, which I really appreciated. There are also some creatures in this book that make me cringe and gave the events a great sense of high stakes and danger. TSVSSS is a hilarious and satirical take on the transmigration genre set in a rich world that's literally programmed for the protagonist to fail. This is a perfect introduction for anyone looking to getting into Danmei or Xianxia. I'm so thankful that the translators, Felicity? and Lily, and Seven Seas have brought MXTX to English readers. I can't wait for Volume 2 to be published this April. Yeah, so that's the end of the review I have up on my blog. And I just want to say that um, I did read all three of the series um, that did come out, the first volumes officially translated in English, and I really do think that 
I'm not going to continue with the other ones. So the other ones are, as I said, the Untamed. And then there's Heaven's Official Blessing as well. And there's actually an official animation made from Heaven's Official Blessing and the Untamed. And I think you can find the Heaven's Official Blessing one on Netflix. But maybe the Untamed one either, or it's the live action version. But in any case, I think that out of all those three series, I really did enjoy this satirical one, the scum villain self-saving system the most. So that's what I'm really going to go for. And that's the one I am going to be keeping up with. Okay, so my second book review of January was The, Lock the Lies of Locke Lamora by Scott Lynch, which is Thieves, Found Family, and Cons Galore. So I have a spoiler-free section for this one and then a spoiler-filled section because it's so hard to talk about this book without <laughs> going into spoilers because I want to gush about it. And it was honestly, I think, my best, my favorite book this January. Um, Yeah, definitely my favorite book this January. So for the spoiler-free section, The Lies of Locke Lamora gave me as intense of a ride as I imagine Locke gives most of his victims. It was everything I had been promised and more. I really want to go into spoilers, so if you need to go ahead to read this book, here it is. Read it if you want adventure, spies, and cons, both momentous and small, found family that'll make you laugh and cry, and an ending that has to be one of my favorite endings of all time. As a boy, Locke Lamora was a thief that stole too much. Given to the service of Father Chains, he was taught how to refine his skills and imitate the nobility, useful stuff given that he steals from nobles now as a man alongside his crew. Everything is going well until a mysterious figure called the Great King hits too close to home at Kamor's underworld boss, Kappa Basavi, and Locke finds himself embroiled in a cat and mouse game between the two that might be even out of his league. So spoilers are beginning here. We should start with Locke Lamora, the protagonist himself, also known as the Thorn of Kamor. First of all, no one in this book is entirely good, but Locke makes being a thief so fun, and is a good person at his core. He's the brains of the operation, and it shows in all of the elaborate schemes he constructs and his incredible improvisation, most notable to me when he loses everything and has to start all over. For another man, this would be devastating both physically and mentally, but with the help of his best friend Jean, of course, he picks himself back up, heads to what is basically the Wall Street of Kamor and robs the head of it for his clothing and money. This is just a taste of who Locke is, and there's so much more behind him than just brains. Locke's history and upbringing have clearly shaped him into the great thief and great man that Father Chains wanted him to be. But he also has his flaws and can get over his head at times. I'm reminded of that great quote from Netflix's Arcane in which Vanda tells Vi, when people look up to you, you don't get to be selfish. Whatever happens, it's on you. So yeah, that great moment from Arcane where Vanda is just, if you haven't seen Arcane, go see it, but Vanda is just talking to Vi and he, he says like basically you are the leader whether you like it or not. And if you're going to be the leader, then you need to understand that everything you do, those other kids, especially because they're kids, are going to be there. Um, if you if you want to burn something down, they're going to be the ones to bring the oil because you're their leader and they idolize you. So take that responsibility. But in any case, 
Locke lets his arrogance get the best of him with the Grey King, who proves to be a formidable match. Instead of running, Locke tries to outscheme the man and ends up with three dead friends as a result. By a miracle, he and John survive, but have been robbed of their substantial earnings, home, and brothers. But Locke doesn't run. This stubbornness is fairy Locke and very Camorran, and his revenge was incredible. Locke's victory in the final battle comes down to a moment of quick thinking in the fight and a lifetime of working with his crew. It's one of the most iconic moments in the series and reveals the big difference between our protagonist and the Great King is not necessarily intelligence, but the fact that Locke still has his family. He still has Jean, but the Great King has no one and nothing left by the time Locke confronts him. I love the flashbacks in the book and how they set up the next chapter, paralleling to future events with a nice subtlety. We get to see the crew as boys under father chains and then as men working on their present con, which allows us to get to know them better and makes it all the more poignant when more than half of them die. I like Jean and Locke as a duo, but a good chunk of what was so enduring to me personally about this book is now gone. This is how it should be. Losing the crew is a big blow and should be emotionally devastating. However, I'm a bit wary of going into the next book now that they are dead, but I'm curious to see how the dynamics change. Locke's crew is exactly what I want in a found family, with lots of playful bickering and moments during and in between cons that allowed us to see the depths of their friendship. One of my favorite scenes is of them cooking and toasting to the successful beginnings of the Don Savara game, one upping each other through a game of boasts that comes back later before everything goes wrong. The crew just radiates that aura of invincibility that young people have. But the world they live in reminds them that victors can always turn into victims at the flip of a dime. The setting of Kamor and the underworld is so rich and such an interesting blend of nobility, businessmen, thieves, and other criminals, and a mysterious history of magic. I love the legends we received about various characters that illustrated who they were even before we met them. For example, Kappa Basavi is introduced to Locke by Father Chains with a little story of how he cemented his rules, his rule in the underworld, by gathering all his rivals one day for negotiations. The man felt comfortable because Basavi was known to roll up his favorite carpet when he planned to kill anyone, so they didn't expect to be shot full of crossbows when they came to dinner, and that carpet was rolled out. There are more of these nuggets sprinkled throughout the book that build a sense of tension and excitement efficiently and act as wonderful seasoning for this world. The religions and politics are especially interesting to learn about on both a local level and a national one. Lynch educates Reed as well through interludes about the people of power, like the Dons and Bonds Magi, and seeing the power dynamics come into play with each faction that Locke interacts with is fascinating. One thing this book has taught me is that there are consequences for everything, and Locke's tricks ensure that he'll have a hard time returning to Kamor when he goes against these powerful opponents. I do wish Lynch had given the villain the Grey King, who later renames himself Kaparaza more time, and I, I love how Locke is just like, oh, Kaparaza, because Raza is Kamorn for revenge, and... You know, the Grey King is here in Kamor to get revenge on Kappa Basavi for killing um, his family. How original naming yourself Kappa Raza. <laughs> Locke can be so snide sometimes. He's more than serviceable as a large threat to Locke's crew, but the final confrontation between the two felt a little underwhelming compared to all of the tension that had been building between them. 
actually would have moved some of the dialogue from Locke and John's conversation with the falconer to that scene, and given readers one more interlude to explore how Raza and his sisters, the Barangias, who are, side note, also very cool, they're sort of like this world's version of MMA fighters or of wrestlers, where they're like gladiators that fight these sea monsters, and the Barangias are the best, and they were also Kappa Basavi's best bodyguards, and that just put them in a perfect position to kill him at the end, or help, you know, their brother Kappa Raza kill him. So the Barangias rose to the positions that they did. In many ways, Raza is very similar to Locke, and having that ambition and hatred paralleled more by the end would have made the finale even more satisfying. The Lies of Locke Lamora has cemented itself as one of my favorite fantasy books and was a great start to the new year. The magic that was spun in this book with its intricate plots, humor, and characters is undeniable, and I look forward to starting my next adventure with Locke and John in Red Seas Under Red Skies. So that's the end of the review for The Lies of Locke Lamora, and now I'm just gonna <laughs> gush a little more about this book. So first of all, Red Seas Under Red Skies. Like, I've actually started that, I'm like 40% of the way through. And I know, you know, people, some people really don't like it because at first it seems that it's going one way. Um, so, like, a lot of the book is focused on uh, robbing a casino. And then uh, Locke and John are forced to become pirates. So they head out on the seas. And I know that people, like, think that was kind of a waste. I guess, of the um, space that they could have been used to set up a pirate adventure. But I think it's actually great because the best things about heist books are something always has to go wrong. The protagonist has to overlook one small thing or there has to be someone just a few steps ahead that screws them over and then it's all about what you do now that you've been screwed over. And that's how it was in The Lies of Locke Lamora too, where everything seemed to be going great and Locke even has his whole thing of celebrating with his friends and thinking that he's going to go and use Kappa Raza and the Great King um, instead. And it turns up that Kappa Raza was just using him actually and that he actually trusted too much. He got too arrogant, he trusted in his abilities too much, and in this other person even too much, which is a strange thing to say because you shouldn't be trusting an enemy and someone who is basically blackmailing you to do something for them, but that's what he did because, you know, Locke didn't think that anyone could get a step ahead of him, and for the most part, nobody does except the Grey King did that time and he certainly taught Locke a lesson and there's this great scene where so the great king is such a mysterious figure for most of the book and he's going around killing all of Kappa Basavi's associates making him feel that pain basically of having your family people you consider your family taken away from you and the ways that they are killed are so brutal and sudden and it also puts Kappa Basavi into this space of fear as well um, of not knowing what's going to happen to you and who's doing this but it's someone close to you it's someone who snuck into your organization and you can tell that the great king really wants him to feel that fear that same fear that he felt when his family was taken away from him and so um, Kappa Basavi has like locked himself away on sort of his little 
mini island or his little like you know water surrounded safe house and he has a daughter and this is one of Locke's friends as well and possibly someone that he was going to marry for politics even though you know they weren't really into each other yeah so he has this daughter and uh what happens is that the gray king gets her somehow and then he basically sends her body back in a what do you call in a keg full of horse urine just that idea of like not even yeah you know i'm gonna kill your child but also I'm going to humiliate your child even in death. So here. And he does that. And of course, Kaba Basavi is incredibly angry, like angry enough to the point that he's just going to go out and meet the Grey King. And he's planning to kill him br and bring his best fighters. And when Locke hears about this, um, of course, he's like, yeah, I'll support you. But secretly, at this point, Locke has already been intercepted and blackmailed by the Grey King. And the Grey King wants him to play himself. The Grey King, basically, at this meeting. I feel like I'm just really going into it, but it's so hard because I just want to describe all the scenes to you. But this was just, I think, such a standout moment of course, a turning point in the book, but there are so many standout moments, but this is like forever stuck in my mind um, as a great scene where, um, yeah, the Great King tricks Locke into dressing as him and then going to the meeting with Kappa Basavi uh, by promising him, oh, it's okay, I've got this like Bonds Magi and, you know, he's, go he's gonna like watch out after you and stuff and Kappa Basavi's gonna be too scared of you to do anything. And Locke actually believes him. This was his first mistake and the fact that Bonds Bonds Magi. Like a lot of it relies on the Bonds Magi, who's called the Falconer, um, because he has this falcon with him at all times. The Bonds Magi are very, very powerful magicians, basically, or practitioners of magic that live in a kingdom and they're the only ones that can use magic. And you either join them or you die, basically. And they cost, they could, hiring them for like one day, one hour even, could cost you your entire life savings because they're that feared, they're that good, they're supreme, and everyone is terrified of them. And they should be because you are basically they're basically just loaded weapons <laughs> full of magic bullets. Locke and his boys are just feel that when they first come into contact with him. Like, you know, as clever as you are, it doesn't matter when someone has magic and can just fuck you up right away um, or paralyze you immediately and slit your throat. So, you know, and but Locke is is like okay sure like why not okay and he um he's confident that the bonds magi will be on his side and that the great king is going to see the deal through because what else could he have planned right what else and so he goes to the meeting and it goes terribly wrong kappa basavi is smart and he actually has a man touch him even though Locke as the great king is just saying all this stuff of like ho ho like you can't touch me i'm magic like you're going to you will die basically um i have power on my side i have a bonds magi on this side i think he says that even um yeah they don't want to touch him but they they make this old man who's dying anyway of a terminal disease 
touch him, and nothing happens to him. And immediately, Kababasavi and his men are like, "All right, cool. We're gonna fucking beat the shit out of you now." And also, remember how you put my daughter in a barrel of horse urine? I'm gonna put you in a barrel of horse urine, and I'm gonna drown you in a grate. And he does that. And the only reason Locke survives is because freaking Jean is there. He is dumped in the barrel out into the ocean. And luckily enough, you know, the mon the Bonds Magi and the Great King underestimated Locke and his boys even just a little bit. And Locke gets out of there and Jean brings him back to life. And thank God Jean was there. And that Locke told Jean to hide nearby because he didn't trust the Great King that much so he had you know he didn't know what was gonna happen but he still had john on standby and he didn't tell the great king about it or anything um but unfortunately the other boys two of the other boys the twins were back at the hideout i think or yeah they were back at the hideout so the assassin the great king sent got them the smallest of them bug died as well and yeah and i think that scene was so great because it's it is showcasing that thing of things go wrong, but how do they go wrong? Because you were too arrogant, because you put too much trust in somebody, but also you are lucky. You are so lucky that you got out of this situation um, and that you, you know, had Father Chains had made you practice like breathing underwater and you held out and then John was there to get you on shore and to like fight off the monster fish that were going after you in the ocean and and i think the revenge is so good like again um having that tenacity um and that very camoran sense of like okay you screwed me over haha yes okay now i'm gonna screw you over back just as hard what what's so great about that plot is also it's not just cons it doesn't just have consequences i'm returning to the scene but it doesn't just have consequences for Locke himself but it also has consequences for kappa basavi and it is the catalyst for a complete turning of power because even Kafa Basavi, as clever as he is, as long as he has held power in this city, he made a mistake as well in getting too arrogant because he thought he had killed the Grey King. What did he do? He decided to have a freaking party because he had been isolating himself on his little island for the entire month basically and he was like yeah my enemy is dead let's have a party everybody's invited like oprah you're invited you're invited you're invited so he invites everybody because of that everybody that raza had persuaded to come onto his side gets to go on that ship and raza himself goes on that ship what's great is that you also see how badly Basavi has fucked up, but also how long the Great King has been moving his pieces on the board. Because all the people that would have stood up for Basavi, all the little gangs underneath him and their leaders that had learned to be loyal to him, they're all killed by their own people, by the second in command of their gangs. And that just shows how much power the Great King had because he has a Bonds Magi and they will fuck you up, but also because he went to not the leaders, but to the seconds in commands and persuaded them 
to take power into their own hands. And for the second in commands that didn't, okay, well, you're all dead now too. And there's a moment afterwards where he stands up and he announces himself, I'm the new kappa, I'm the new ruler, and hey, I'm not gonna be that bad. Come on, I'm a chill kappa, I'm a cool kappa, and I'm going to make it so that everything is the same. You know, you're gonna pay the same taxes just to me this time, and I'll even let you guys go off wherever you want. You've got like three days, okay, to do, to like pack up your shit and get out of here. If you don't want to be under my rule, that's all cool. And he says this and everybody, but most people bow down their heads, but the ones that leave, he doesn't even give them three hours. He's like, oh, you're packing up. Okay. Well, you're dead now too. Cool. So that's what happens. <laughs> and, and it is epic and Oh, just talking about it makes me want to read it again or listen to it on audiobook. Yeah, but going, I, I want to go more into Locke's revenge as well because there was an important part of it that is important for the next book. And it's where he, like, you know, yes, Basavi is an asshole. He did, not, not Basavi, Raza is an asshole. He did all of this, but. There's a torture scene in this book. I'm just going to come out and say it, but there's a torture scene in this book where Locke and John capture the Bonds Magi, and they don't even capture her on purpose because they're just hiding out in like a little hotel or hovel or whatever with like someone who's still very loyal to Basavi and who hates Raza, and they're hiding out with this guy. <laughs> and... And then they come back from like another heist that they've been like setting up, which, oh boy, that heist as well. Um, the Bonds Magi, the Falconer, basically ambushes them and he has full control of Jean because the Bonds Magi, if they know your true name, that gives them power and basically you're their doll. So he messes Jean up, but he's like, ooh. Lock Lamora, like I am going to, I use my name, your name to control you and stuff like that. And then Locke pretends to be controlled, but he's like, you dumb shit, that's not even my real name. What kind of name do you, what kind of person do you think would name their child Lock Lamora? Like, uh-uh, not my name. That's how he one-ups the Bonds Magi, which I think is excellent because that's like a little thing that has been established is that at the very beginning, during one of the flashbacks into to Locke as a little kid, he just came up with the name on the spot when he met Father Chains, I think, or when he met um the man who first inducted him into like the little kids thieves guild. And there was this moment where, like, he sort of hesitated before giving his name, or he, like, was just, he looked at something. He's like, yeah, I guess it's Locke Lamora, sure, whatever. Um, and you could tell that he had just made it up on the spot. So I think seeing this come back was really cool. And also the fact that John had already done his thing. Like, he took out the assassin, and it was great. And I think he took out the assassin. So Jean like already did this, his thing, and this was Locke's time to shine against the Bonds Magi. I think the torture scene itself feels weird saying this, but the torture scene, pretty epic. And also just so emotionally hot, hot felt and hot rendering 
with the way that Locke talks about when he's torturing this man, when he talks about his friends, and he's basically just like, why? Why did you do that? Part of the Grey King's reason to set Locke up for meeting Basavi, disguised as him, was also so he could steal the vault from Locke and his boys. That vault had all of the money they had over all the years, freaking dollars, um, that they stole from the nobles during their heists. There's even a terribly sad moment when Locke is just saying to John, I was an idiot. We should have done what the twins said. We could have taken this money and started new lives and gone somewhere else. And because I didn't want to, because I wanted to continue my high basically, of doing more heists. I fucked up, didn't take the money, so now we don't have any money, we don't have anything, and most important of all, we don't have our brothers. Just, uh, like, it's devastating. Okay, I'm just gonna read you this, this section. Locke is saying, why did Caparaza want us dead? Money, whispered the falconer. That vault of yours, I spied it out while I was first making my observations of you. He'd intended just to use you as a distraction for Kava Basavi. When we discovered how much money you'd already stolen, he wanted to have it, to pay for me, almost another month of my services, to help him finish his tasks here in the city. You murdered my fucking friends, said Locke, and you tried to murder Jean and myself for the metal in our vault? You seem the type to hold a grudge, coughed the falconer. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, isn't that funny? We figured you'd be better off with all of you safely dead. Do do do. Yes, and Kappa Raza's real name is Luciano. And that scene of him just being so incredulous of, oh, you killed my friends for money? For metal. And money is important to Locke. He loves money, but he also loves the thrill of doing a heist with his fucking friends. And so to him, he's that idea of like, oh, you just wanted money, man. And yeah, you know, you will be willing to kill my friends for it. And Locke and his boys haven't killed people yet, even though they've been taught how to. They very well could if they wanted to, but they don't kill people. And that doesn't make them necessarily, you know, high and mighty, like even Locke admits it himself. They're still friggin' thieves, Has doesn't kill people. And so that idea of like, yeah, I like money. You wanted money to do it. You just kill my friends. And you didn't have to, by the way. You could have knocked them out unconscious. You could have distracted us and had us go somewhere else and then taken the money out of the vault. But you decided that the simplest way was kill those kids. That's what gets Locke, I think, more than anything else. For money. For money, yeah. And here we go, during the final fight. And I said, you know, like, wasn't as great, but still pretty fucking good, um, the final fight. And so at this point, Locke has gone it, has gone to the Great King, the Great King's sisters, the Barangias, dead, everybody else, the Bonds Magi. <laughs> so what happened with the Bonds Magi is that Jean and Locke tortured him, cut off, I think, a couple of his fingers so he couldn't do magic, cut off his tongue as well, so he couldn't do magic. And then they sent him to the city guard to give back to where the Bonds Magi come from, Carthane, I think, um, with a little note that says, like, here, 
you know, we didn't kill him, so you can't come after us because the Bonds Magi will wipe out you and everyone you know and love if you kill one of them or hurt one of them, when if you kill one of them especially. And so they sent him back with a little note saying, like, we didn't kill him. He can't use magic again. Here you go. Um, and that's something that's going to come up in Red Seas Under the Red Skies. But, yep, so Grey King doesn't have the Bonds Magi. Let's, yep. Okay, I'm going to read you a passage. And this is the last thing because we got to move on to other books besides Locke Lamora, even though Locke Lamora is great. This is Locke saying, Fuck your wishes. Why did you do it the way you did, Luciano? Why didn't you try for an honest accommodation with us? One might have been reached. Might, said the Grey King. There was no room for my Lamora. There were only my needs. You had what I needed, and you were too dangerous to let live once I had it. You've made that only too clear. But you could have settled for simple thefts, said Locke. I would have given it all to keep Kahlo and Galdo and Bug alive. I would have given it all had you put it to me like that. What thief does not fight to hold what he has? One that has something better, said Locke. The stealing was more the point for us than the keeping. If the keeping had been so fine, we would have found something to fucking do with it all. Easy to say in hindsight, the Grey King sighed. You would have some something different when you were still alive. We stole from the peers, you asshole. We stole from them exclusively, of all the people to double-cross. You aided the nobility when you tried to wipe us out. You gave the people you hate a god's damned gift. So you relieved them of their money, Master Lamora, scrupulously refraining from taking lives in the process. Should I applaud you? Name a brother in arms. There is always more money, Lamora. Theft alone would not teach them the lesson they had coming. Right. And so what they're talking about here is that basically for Raza, Luciano, um, getting revenge on just Basavi wasn't enough. He wants revenge on every single person that in his mind had everything to do with his family's death and that includes the nobles that were keeping what is called the secret peace basically the peace between the underworld and between the nobility he wants because his father died his whole family died because his father found out about the secret peace and was like what the fuck like nobles are safe but the lesser nobles, the lesser aristocracy the, can still be, you know, stolen from because, because you have this secret peace going on with the underworld. And let's be clear that Luciano's father wasn't a good man either because his thing wasn't, you. we should have a secret peace for everybody. Or it's not fair that only nobles get secret peace. Everyone should be equal to that. Um, if you're going to uphold the law, it can't just be a law for you guys. It has to be a law for everybody. No, Luciano's father's whole thing was, oh, you have a secret peace, I want in on that. I'm fine with screwing everybody else over, but I want in on that. So it was a selfish thing. It wasn't some noble purpose for you know equalizing everybody who wasn't getting a part of that pie just to make that clear yeah so basically the gray king is <laughs> i keep on calling him by different names i'm sorry yeah the gray king luciano raza he, he had this plan to get revenge on the nobility as well for being part of his family's murder by putting this very poisonous substance inside these ice statues 
that he was going to deliver as a gift to this annual party where all of these high nobles attend. And basically what's going to happen is that he was going to put explosives in there and that poisonous substance would have gone out and it was going to poison not only the adults, but the children that were playing on in a specific part of the building or at another building on top of the roof. He was he wanted to wipe all of them out because in his mind, that was the only way to get true revenge, not only on the adults who might have been part of this whole thing, whether directly or indirectly, didn't matter to him, but also on the next generation, on their kids. He felt that was only fair. So let's go. How could you do it, Luciano? How could a man who lost what you lost, who felt what you felt for Basavi, do the same to me? The same? The Grey King leapt up. The rapier was in his hand. The same? With your parents murdered in their beds to protect a lie, Master Lomora? Were your infant siblings put to the knife so they could grow old, so they could never grow old enough to revenge? Thief, you don't know what crime truly is. I lost three brothers at your hand, said Locke. I almost lost four. You didn't need to do it. When you thought you were finished with me, you tried to kill hundreds. Children, Luciano, children. Born years after Basavi murdered your parents. It must be nice to be righteous. From where I'm standing, it looks like fucking lunacy. They were sheltered by the secret peace, said the guilty king. Said the... <laughs> That's my new nickname for him, Guilty King, said the Great King. They were parasites, guilty by birth. Save your arguments, priest. Don't you think I've had them with myself on too many nights to count over the past 22 fucking years? That's the beginning of what is going to be their fight. And so that is the lies of Lockmore. I think you can tell by how we are 46 minutes into this podcast and 30 of those minutes, 40 of those minutes were me talking about Lockmore. So go read it. Now on to the next book, A Palm for the Wild Built by Becky Chambers, which is a Ghibli-like story of an optimistic robot and grumpy monk. So this book was like drinking a cup of tea in your favorite cup at the perfect temperature. A Palm for the Wild Built is a comforting story of Dex, who decides to become a tea monk one day and leave their city behind because they've never heard the sound of crickets. When they meet the robot Mosscap, they reluctantly gain a companion and set off even deeper into the wild. Like her other books, I love the way Chambers carefully constructs the characters that live in her world and the cultures that they live in. The descriptions of the architecture like the hanging houses, the wildlife, and the scenery in general made me yearn to live in this book. Her exposition is lightly incorporated in these descriptions throughout Dex's journey and through the dialogue, which is always funny and thought-provoking. What really stood out to me in terms of exposition was the history of robots themselves and the culture they had created after leaving human society. I love that they named themselves after the first thing they see when they're born, that they're born from parts taken from multiple robots to ensure a fair death like everything else in nature, and that they all have distinct interests and specializations. And side note, so like what's really cool something that's very cool is that the robots when they've awakened to their consciousness like they name themselves after the first thing they see so with Mosscap named themselves after a mushroom the first thing that they saw it was so fun to see slightly grumpy Dex and excitable Mosscap become friends and teach each other new things Mosscap has officially become one of my favorite robot characters it has such a sense of wonder and pure joy in discovering the smallest things that are mundane to humans. A chair? 
incredible an onion holy shit this sense of wonder leaps off the page and is endearing and tempered by Moscap's wisdom as something that walks among nature and has become part of it in a way humans still struggle with this balance and its contrast with dex who is learning to just be sometimes is what makes this book so wonderful to read in dex dex is so human they're a good person, a little estranged from their family, and torn at times between doing what they want and being good for other people. They get frustrated at Moscap and themselves, and they're learning how strange they are as a product of human society from Moscap. But they also introduce this robot to what it means to be human in little ways, like wanting to feed guests, even if it's impossible to eat, and the stubbornness of humans to just keep going because of the smallest things. A Palm for the Wild Built is a lovely story that feels like the best part of a Ghibli movie will make you want to eat something delicious or take a walk outside afterwards. And what's also great about this book is that it's just the perfect, as I said, perfect temperature, a cup of tea really. It's short enough that I read this in like a couple hours and I was like, oh, afterwards, I needed that. I needed a very comforting book. And as I said, Becky Chambers, she has a great way of writing worlds and writing these fairy, like realistic and human characters who are also, you know, very down on themselves sometimes, but also can be very optimistic. And it is like a Ghibli movie because it makes you appreciate all the little things that make life worth living and it's not some grand existential thing of finding yourself finding love sometimes it's literally just i keep living because i can go outside and the feeling of going outside and looking around me is enough um, of taking a walk sometimes like that's why i keep living becky chambers also wrote another series i think called um a long way to a small planet let me look it up Yes, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, which is just a great title. And that's also another sci-fi book from her that I recommend because it has everything that I really loved about A Palm for the Wild Built, but it's more expansive. It's got so many different like alien cultures in there. Um, a couple of humans sprinkled in, chill, why not? And it's about like not judging other species, not judging even other people about how they live their lives, which may include, you know, like I remember very vividly there's a character on that spaceship that their culture, their race, like uh, they love each other and they're brought in like communal nests sort of with uh, multiple other siblings. But like their parents just leave. And this alien herself, like she's had a bunch of kids and they all, you know, sometimes she checks up on them. Sometimes she's never seen some of them and that's fine. And the human who she starts a relationship with, by the way, um, she at first is like, oh, interesting. Like it's, it's so weird because that would make humans sad. Like that idea of having kids and then possibly never seeing them again or just seeing them once a decade like you know that's just how it is for her and i'm i shouldn't judge that like that's her culture that's her way of living and it's healthy and she's okay with that so i'm okay with that yeah um it's little things like that or not so little things i guess but it's great characterization it's great world building like that that makes feel so real in becky chambers's books we are going to move on to another book i really enjoyed and there's a couple here that i didn't enjoy so don't worry we're gonna get to those 
but a book that I didn't enjoy, I did enjoy. Um, the Inheritance of Orchidea Divina by Zoraida Cordova. This is about magic, broken families, and reunions. So this book is a wonderful story that follows the Montoya family beginning in Ecuador when matriarch Orchidea left her family to pursue freedom and her journey to the mythical town of Four Rivers. She built a home and a family in the United States, but dark forces have followed her and are determined to receive their due from her and the family one way or another. There is no doubt that the Montoyas are a family that loves one another. They just do it at a distance from each other and their family tree and relationships were so interesting. It's a shame but understandable that the book fo focuses on Orchidea and only three of those descendants, Tati, Marima, and Ray. I love the characterization of the three and the ways in which they're at different points in their lives but still supportive of each other. Tati is expecting a child and is very happy with her life. Marima is questioning herself and what she wants to do. And Ray is just trying to be happy with what he has, but wonders if that's all he'll ever have. And I very, side note, I very much resonated with Ray. One of my favorite parts of the book is the beginning. Orchidea writes to all her descendants and tells them that she's dying. And basically, hey, I'm dying. Collect your money. You know, Monopoly, Pasco, collect your money. <laughs> In any story about a dysfunctional family of sorts, I gravitate towards that moment when they all come back to their childhood home or together for some reason, usually for money. Similar to movies like Knives Out and stories like The Inheritance Games and Malibu Rising, Cordova's book slowly parts those curtains to let us into the lives of the Montoyas. It's a little detail, but I loved Marima and Ray driving together to the house and seeing the parking lot full of their relatives' cars and knowing which one belongs to whom immediately. Like, oh, there's a Bentley there? We know which asshole member of our fa family drives a Bentley. Or, or Mercedes or something. Some fancy car. When the family is pushed to return to Ecuador and to delve into Orchidea's past, their relationship with her transforms in really beautiful ways. I love the message that children and grandchildren never really know their grandparents as the people they were before, and that so much sacrifice goes into giving your kids a better life, but also to save yourself. At the same time, that doesn't excuse Orkadea's emotional distance and stubborn silence about the family history, and some of her actions have really hurt the rest of them. Orkadea is a remarkable character who is destined to be followed by bad luck, but continues surviving and trying to be free anyway. The chapters from her perspective were my favorite because it was so fascinating to see her relationships with the family she left behind and her first husband, and then understand her current self in a different light. In her chapters were like watching an interesting documentary, and the mark she left behind on the lives of others was very moving. I wish there had been more insight into her relationship with the children and grandkids though, especially Ray and Marima and the rest of the family. It's stated that most of them don't have a great relationship with her, but it never felt like she did anything specifically hurtful besides pushing them away by being vague about her past. Side note, so I know that like literally before, um, one chapter, one paragraph ago, I said, I said, um, some of her actions have really hurt the rest of them, right? I think what I'm trying to say here is that I can, I can tell that the actions have hurt them, like pushing them away, not wanting to talk about her past or her, um, first husband, and even being, like, reticent about 
you know, the rest of the people that passed on when like a kid that was born after those people passed on asks her about them. Um, but for me, I'm like, that's just a, yeah, you know, like that is sad that she feels like she can't talk about those experiences and her feelings about them and share what is still an important part of history for her for these kids but at the same time it's understandable and i don't think it was enough to like really i guess what what i'm thinking is like i i wish there had been more specific instances like pinpoints where i could be like oh this hurt marima or this hurt ray and with marima it's more understandable because she had that specific moment where her mom died and she wanted to know what happened with her mom because her mom died of drowning but her mom was like a national swimmer so she's like what the hell i don't know like this is just impossible like what's going on grandma if if like what you've talked about about magic like a little bit and like your dark past has anything to do with her you have to tell me and her grandma basically shut her down was like i'm not talking about it and they got into this whole fight then it ended up with Marima just leaving the house. Um, so besides that, though, like there's never like why does everybody else, including Ray and Tati, feel antagonistic towards the grandma or feel like she's hurt them? So, like, what specific instances? Um, that's what I'm thinking about when I say that. Um, da, da, da. Okay, more stories of her raising her children grandkids would have made her reconciliation with all of the family later in the book more impactful and meaningful. One of the strongest messages of this book is that love is worth the pain it can cause, and that people are inextricably tied together across oceans and time because of one moment. In the inheritance of Orcadea Divina, the Montoyas continue to choose each other and are ultimately better for it. Yes, I will say I got... I mentioned Malibu Rising here about the way that the book does a fantastic job in enticing readers to peek into the life of the Montoyas and to see their histories and relationships unravel in front of you like a play and how that reminded me of Malibu Rising, which is another great book by Taylor Reed Jenkins, who wrote The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Taylor Reed Jenkins just does a great job detailing the effects of fame on people, on even generations, and how fame can, how good it feels, how addictive it is, but also how messed up it can get you, and how it messes up your relationships and your self-perception and self-worth as you tie it into what other people, into what the industry thinks of you. Malibu Rising is about the family, the Riva family, and their father, who is the famous rock star Mick Riva, who had a little thing with Evelyn Hugo and the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo, was one of the husbands for like one night when they went to Las Vegas. But in any case, so Malibu Rising is about that family and them having to deal with the fact that their mom died after their dad left them for like the second time how difficult their lives have been and how they raised each other but especially nina the eldest sister raised all of them together after their mom died and it's about them finding the freedom to like live the lives they want to live and how their father's legacy has affected them and also how do you break free from a father that has such a deep and overwhelming shadow and who you can't get away from because he's everywhere in pop culture. So Malibu Rising is about that. Malibu Rising, in particular, the way it talks about infidelity and the way it talks about love reminded me so much of 
Orcadea and her relationship with her first husband and just how that relationship went down of and spoilers of course um but how that relationship went down of Orcadea finding this man like running away with him to join the circus and how he was the ringmaster and he and he basically had um this is where the magic comes in but he had a a star that flashbacks to stardust by neil gaiman but he had a star that crashed and he got the star and captured it and was basically trapping the poor guy this star could grant wishes and so he wished for his true love because he was very popular with women so good looking so charismatic um but he didn't have his true love and so he wished for his true love and she came and it was orchidea yeah it was true love but it also wasn't true love because it was a love that burned very fast and very passionately and ended a couple of times when even though they got married the ringmaster the first husband cheated on her so many times and that's where the malibu rising comes in as well of like loving this man that cheats on you and going back to him and hating yourself a little bit every time and hating him more every time you go back and yet still being drawn into this orbit by the idea of like well but he needs me or i i need him and i just feel so much for him so even if i don't i know it's not good for us it's not good for me i can't help myself almost of getting drawn back in and it's that feeling that's so similar to malibu rising and that's done so well in this book Cordova just really writes how difficult that is in such a simplistic way and but that way is like so so great as well um of conveying all of the power and all of the emotion and fraughtness in that kind of relationship and how in the end Orchidea manages to leave him and she bonds with the star and she takes the power of the star for herself. It's not actually the star that's haunting her, it's her first husband that's haunting her because she got away from him. She escaped because at that point, like she had had enough. She didn't love him anymore. He didn't love her. And she had a kid though, and she had another kid and and she was pregnant with another kid and she uh, wanted to just get away, but like knew he wouldn't let her go. And so she took the star's power for her own, unfortunately leaving the star too weakened. Um, and he got recaptured by the first husband. And the first husband became obsessed, of course, with Orchidea and tracking her down because it's not enough that, you know, he was with quote unquote his true love and had her for a while and they were in this relationship and he screwed up repeatedly. But in his mind, he it was the fact that she couldn't have family, she couldn't have anybody else except him, even if she left him, like, no, that just wasn't, that just wasn't a thing that she could do, like, she couldn't move on, and that's what's really haunting about this book, that's the ghost that's tracking her, that's her dark past, is this first husband who drew her into this relation, unhealthy relationship so much, and who, didn't want her to be her own person and just wanted her to be like a lot of other men she met before of keeping her down and seeing her less as a person and more as an object because what Orcadeo valued the most and what she wanted so much that she ran away to the circus for was freedom so then to meet 
quote-unquote your true love and then discover that he doesn't care about that ultimately and even if you had freedom with him initially it turned into more trappings like that is a terrible thing and i think that anybody who has been in any kind of unhealthy relationship that has felt really good but then gone terribly wrong can definitely relate to that feeling and then you don't talk about their relationship with your kids or your grandkids or even your friends maybe like the people closest to you so i think yeah orchidea is just a remarkable character you know she's so understandable in the way that she goes about things and in the way that unfortunately she shields herself she shields her heart from the only people that could really truly understand or, or maybe not even understand but from her own family who could help her through the healing process and it feels good to open yourself up a lot of the times like to other people but she couldn't even do that because she thought that not talking about it was the same as getting rid of it and what what is it? It's like maybe a line from this book or another book I've read about dysfunctional families where it's about like this family has a problem with silence. Like silence was passed down throughout generations of just never talking about your issues. And that's something very common in ideas of uh, families that really don't know how to talk to each other. Unfortunately, it becomes a whole cycle of like, well, my parent didn't talk to me, so I'm not going to talk to my kids, which means my kids aren't going to talk to me which just reinforces that idea of like why can't we become closer to each other oh because we don't talk to each other that's why so that is inheritance of orchidea divina very recommended oh holy crap i was i was like i don't have a co-host i don't have anybody else to talk to about these books so this is gonna take be like a 30 minute podcast of all the books i've read this month last month but no we're at one hour already i'm so sorry and <laughs> i am going to actually take a break here and then we're gonna move on to part two of january um january's reading roundup because i do not want to make a two-hour episode so i will see you in part two thank you for listening so far if you have um i'm actually not going to be having ads by the way on my podcast and anymore because i can't even cash out on the ads because i don't know what the hell's going on with stripe so yeah i will see you for the next part bye, bye.